This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, Show 47. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my fabulous co-host, Mr. Brandon Turner. Yo, 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 what up, Brandon? Yo, what up? Hey, you want to hear me rap? I do. All right, I got to get a beat. You go dun 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 dun. dun. Oh, oh, is that what we're doing? Okay. Oh, I can do it. All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. You're not even. You're not even on the beat, dude. Well, you know, they'll have to listen another time. That was awful. I was on a road trip once. My wife and I learned all of Ice Ice Baby. It was good. Yeah, you, 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 and about two hundred million other people have that song burned into your brain. Yeah, you know, we're 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 cool people, you know. Not everyone can be quite as talented. Anyway, all right. All right. Yes. Anyway, this uh, this is the Bigger Pockets podcast, and and I am here with Brandon, who apparently uh, fancies himself Vanilla Ice, and uh, so um, we, we we got an interesting show today, guys. We we really wanted to to start exploring a little bit more into some more advanced topics and. Uh, move beyond just really covering kind of the basics. So today we're going to dig into commercial and uh, more specifically a topic that's kind of fascinated me, which is triple net leases, uh, which which you'll learn more about as we uh, as we go along. Uh, before before we we do that though, uh, I would like to uh, present today's quick quick tip. Today's quick tip. Yeah, what is today's quick tip, Brandon? I'm not going to present it. I'm going to just leave it for you. All right, my quick tip today is go befriend a banker right now. And the reason I chose that one is because uh, this week I uh, got a call from my banker and apparently he read one of my blog posts and was impressed. And so his boss, I guess, read it and told the banker to give me a call and get me into the bank to have a meeting to talk. That's my quick tip. Start talking about what you're doing with people, especially your banker. Clearly, clearly they were as drunk as you are right now. Clearly, clearly. <laughs> Anyway, that's no, it's, 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 it's a great tip. It's a very, very good tip. You know, if it's a very, very good tip. Yeah. Uh, bankers uh, are the lifeblood of of uh, more sophisticated investors, and and uh, the the more of them you know, the better you're going to do. Yeah. So that's fabulous. All right, guys, really quick uh, before we get into introducing our, our guest, I, I just wanted to give a quick reminder: if you uh, if you like the show, please jump on iTunes and leave us a review, leave us a rating. Those reviews and ratings really help us out, and uh, they help other people get to know more about Bigger Pockets, uh, the Bigger Pockets podcast. So definitely take a minute to leave us an honest review there, um, and uh, we we definitely appreciate it. Otherwise. Uh, make sure to check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 47 where you can ask questions of our guest and uh, anything you want to ask him, anything you want to talk to him about, uh, you can do that there at biggerpockets.com slash show 47. All right. So Joel Owens, our guest. Uh, Joel's an active member of the Bigger Pockets forums and uh, he's definitely an expert in all things commercial. Uh, he's a commercial real estate broker and a, a uh, and a commercial investor, and and he's going to share he's going to share a lot of really good stuff about getting started with the whole world of uh, commercial investing. 
I think we're going to cover everything from apartments to, like I said, to triple net leasing and, and a whole lot more. Uh, today's show is definitely packed with some high-end stuff. So as always, uh, you know, bust out a notepad and take some notes, unless, of course, you're driving, in which case that would be a <laughs> bad idea. Uh, but uh, you could always rewind this uh, this thing and, and listen again if, if need be. Did you know that short and medium-term rentals often offer double the cash flow compared to long-term rentals? Well, it's true. And rental retirement just made investing in them easier than before. Now you can buy fully turnkey short and medium-term rentals that are newly built or renovated, leased, and managed. Maximize your cash flow, appreciation, and equity while the rental retirement team takes care of all of it for you. Plus, their creative financing options like interest rate buy-downs can get you a rate in the low fives. And their investor loans let you buy multiple properties with as little as 5% down. Not 20%. 5% down. But why buy with rent to retirement? They're investors just like you and me and rock one of the highest reputations across bigger pockets with more five star reviews than any other company on our site. And I think that's a pretty big deal. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI. 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing in some of the best cash flow markets today. Buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high. It's a simple concept, right? But not necessarily an easy concept. Right now, high interest rates have crushed the real estate market. Prices are falling and properties are available at a discount, which means Fundrise believes that now is the time to expand the Fundrise flagship fund's billion-dollar real estate portfolio. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in minutes by visiting fundrise.com pockets. Fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. So uh, with that, why don't we bring Joel in, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, Brandon could bust a beat here and and uh, get it going. Come on, Brandon. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> All right, hi uh, Joel. What's up, man? Joel, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Thanks, Josh. Oh no, thank you for me. Oh, oh he knows what's up, man. He's <laughs> Joel's the man. Joel. Uh, well, Brandon works behind the scenes, so he doesn't count. <laughs> Yeah, Joel, awesome. Joel knows how things work around here. Joel, Joel awesome. just climbed up the ladder yet another rung. Nice one. <laughs> well, what's yeah, up? I, I didn't want to, uh, I, I didn't want to say hi to Brandon because he just got off the hamster wheel trying to power Josh's house. So I knew he was there, sorry. There you go. See, he <laughs> understands how this game is. Ah, uh, I see. I see. All right, man. Well, enough <laughs> about me. Let's talk about me. 
I mean, <laughs> wait, let's talk about you. All right, so so for those folks who, who are unfamiliar with you, Joel, how'd you get into real estate? Well, basically, uh, you know, I started out young owning a couple of different businesses and uh, I used to have a, a car audio shop. I used to have a, a pizza shop. Um, and okay, you got to stop right there. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker, man. You had a pizzeria? Yeah, yeah. I had a pizza. I had a pizza shop for a while. Um, I, I I worked for I worked for Domino's Pizza for a while, and I was a driver, and then I was a manager. And the person I worked for, he owned about eighty four locations. He Whoa. was one of the biggest franchisees in the country. He actually um, was uh, Tom Monahan's right hand man, which is one of the the brothers that owned Domino's Pizza, and uh, they basically, you know, started, grew the company real big together. I used to own some commissaries too, but it came to a point where they told him he either had to own the stores only as a franchisee or the commissary. So I learned a lot from him. And um, after I left there, I opened up uh, my own pizza shop, which I had for a number of years. But the, uh, the hours were really, really long. If you took a vacation, the employees didn't care about the sales like you did. They were just making hourly. So yeah. Um, after a while, I just said, "Hey, I want to, I want to get out of this." And then uh, a friend of mine owned a landscaping company, and uh, it got to a point where he was either going to have to add more crews or sell it off. So he sold his company off, and he had been in real estate for a few years. Now I'd always wondered about it, and so um, I just gave him a call and asked how he liked it, and uh, he said he loved it, and uh, that's when I went and uh, went and took the test. What was he? Was he an agent or a broker then? He was an agent in, in Georgia. You have to, as soon as you get licensed, you have to be licensed for at least three continuous years before you can sit for your broker's license. Okay. And was he doing, was your buddy doing commercial or residential? No, he was just doing residential. Um, he knew a bunch of people from his landscaping business that he sold off where he did their yards and everything else. Um, when I first became licensed, um, I was kind of focusing on, you know, back then, um, the market was just starting to turn. It was still booming for maybe the first you know, year or so uh, after I got licensed. And then the short sales started happening. And I did those for a while, but just the emotional drama from all the, all the residential homeowners about, you know, I'm getting foreclosed on or they're coming after my car and all this kind of stuff. Um, those long night hours and weekends, I was really trying to get away from that. I had that with the pizza place, um, working in that business, and I was trying to get away from that. So I was really looking for something different after I got licensed. Um, I, how that kind of transitioned into the commercial aspect was, funny enough, there was this older gentleman, and we were friends, and I used to be a, a delivery pizza driver. Um, and we got to talking and basically, uh, he, uh, he owned an old coin laundry he had inherited from his mother, him and his brother did. And this developer had approached him, um, to buy their property. Uh, it was an older building built in the fifties. And basically he asked me to review the contract, uh, the purchase and sale from this developer because the developer was hounding him to see if I could spot any, um, potential problems. And so basically I went through the whole contract, spotted a bunch of issues. We met with the developer directly. And then, um, after that, after that meeting, uh, the developer actually called me and then 
wanted me to come on board um, because I caught every out in the contract. Usually people don't catch everything. I caught every single thing. And then he wanted me to help him assemble all the uh, 25 acres there for the commercial mixed use project. So I worked on that for about the next two to three years. Oh, so wow. you had up and up until that point, you had zero experience looking over these kinds of agreements or doing any kind of deals in the commercial side, correct? Yeah. I mean, I'd owned some businesses before. So as far as that aspect, you know, talking to the, you know, owners, a lot of these land parcels were older businesses in the fifties and stuff. So I could kind of relate to them as a business owner that way. So I knew a little bit of that side of it, but as far as, you know, Assembling the land for X, we're going to use tax credits. It's going to cost this much to scrape the land. It's going to take this many times and phases. We're going to have to do, you know, all these different things, you know, meeting with the uh, mayor and, you know, the zoning and all this other kind of stuff. I, I really didn't have experience with that. The The guy that I worked with over the, over the next two to three years, he actually um, used to work for uh, some of the big REIT companies and they would do takeovers uh, of other companies and basically strip them, mm. strip them down and then, you know, resell them and all this kind of stuff. And basically it was kind of a soulless job. And he basically left that after, you know, many, many years of doing that for one of these large REITs. And he basically went on to um, just do his own development projects as a consultant you know, to usually what happens with these development deals is you'll have an owner that's owned some land for a really long time that might be local and they don't really know uh, how to approach, you know, big time developers or, or, you know, get an anchor, Publix, Kroger, how to negotiate with their acquisition departments or present a project or any of that stuff. So what they'll do is they'll uh, line up with a developer that's uh, a consultant that basically puts the whole project together. Gotcha. And keeps it moving forward. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so your role was pretty varied in there, and it sounds like uh, you know the next two two plus years or so was was pretty much an on the job learning experience for you. Yeah, I mean, I had to go out there to you know some of these were little bitty houses, some of them were um, little bitty uh, businesses, and I mean it was a process. I mean to get this stuff under contract, uh, you know, we'd negotiate a few points, go back. Uh, sometimes it took me a total of about six months or so before we finally got them under contract and everything was taken care of. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, that's cool. That's great. So, so how did that transition, uh, from how did, how did you transition from, from that to going off on your own and, and, and starting to make your own purchases? Well, I, uh, about that time, there's kind of a transitioning happening, happening in the marketplace. Um, you know, at the end of that project, uh, the market was kind of getting soft. A lot of the new home builders uh, weren't building, you know, the five, six hundred thousand dollar homes anymore. They were kind of pulling out, selling out the rest of their inventory because they saw the, the the writing on the wall. And so, a lot of com commercial projects that are, you know, ground up development kind of stopped at that point. Um, you know, and they were just finishing what was in the pipeline because, uh, you know, all the commercial uh, money kind of dried up for new construction. And then what would happen is if you had a $50,000 house mixed in with $500,000 houses, then for instance, Publix, the anchor would say, um, if we build this here right now, because the economy is going down, we won't have our customer base that we want here, even though we love the area, love the traffic counts, et cetera. So I took on a, a bunch of different land listings for a while. 
uh, but those weren't really moving and they cost a lot of time and money. So you're, basically, you're, are you talking, sorry to cut you off, are you you're talking about just uh, raw land? Yeah, yeah, you mainly raw land or there was even land that had been scraped that was just, uh, you know, just dirt there. Um, it, it could even be in a good area. But uh, what I mean, what happened every, at that point is basically, you know, the bottom dropped out foreclosures started coming into the market. People started defaulting on their loans uh, on the commercial side and people kind of switched instead of building, unless it was a, a corner location, what they would do is um, they would just buy something for less than replacement costs. You know, it could do a short sale REO uh, from the bank and, and just do a value add uh, type deal. So, so at that point I kind of switched. Um, I did some letters, mailed out some letters that point I got my uh, brokerage uh, license my own company at that point uh, just to do what I wanted to do and uh, basically um, I got a call off of that and it was a uh, a group that owned about 200 and something units um, up in Dalton Georgia it's the carpet capital of the world uh, where they manufacture a lot of construction material and uh, basically they had financed during the, the height of the market and I met with them and I ended up listing their 60 unit, uh, all one bed apartments uh, as a short sale um, with uh, Wells Fargo being the lender. Gotcha. Okay. And learned a lot from that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so now you're, you're working on the commercial side on your own. You've got your brokerage. Um, you know, what, at what point do you say, you know what, I'm going to jump in. And, and what did that look like? How did you on your own uh, uh, personal side start to uh, acquire uh, the, these commercial properties? Well, um, you know, me and you did a, uh, uh, we talked a while back about, uh, you know, the first one was uh, a 20 unit that I had in uh, Roswell. It was, um, five quadruplexes, four units a piece for 20 units. And uh, basically, you know, I did that one at the time. I did that one with a wrap where we wrapped around the existing mortgage. Um, so if the under, you have a certain price of the a certain debt service for the first mortgage, you create a second note where they owner finance you around the existing note, just wrap around it. Um, and then you actually get the a deed to the property. Th that particular property, I don't own that one today. Um, that one's a, a long story. I learned a lot when I had that property. Um, basically, without getting into too much, I, I won't go into too much specifics on, on the people involved, but basically, um, after I bought it, what I found out later was is that the seller, there was supposed to be 18 out of 20 units occupied. And what I found out later is the seller was taking a line of credit from their house. And so if the rents were 18,000 a month, they were collecting 9,000 and then they were taking 9,000 from their line of credit and then putting that into their business account. Like they were collecting full rents. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. And so basically what happened is when I got in there, uh, I ended up having to evict about 10 people. Whoa. 10 unit. And because they had previous agreements with the, you know, unspoken agreements with the landlord or they're doing handyman services and, 
basically the seller was a, a, a Wheeler and dealer. Um, basically what ended up happening with that because the owner financed it on the wrap, um, the in property insurance company, when that came up to renew on, on the property for them, they found out that they had switched a uh, title. It was no longer in their name and they wouldn't, um, insure anymore. Uh, you know, re renew their policy. Uh, so basically at that point, you know, me and the seller had gone round around because basically I evicted all these people. I was constantly doing repairs to the property to get them in rentable condition. Um, and basically the, the property was basically, you know, hemorrhaging cash. The, the seller told me that I could, um, you know, convert the deed to a land contract and then work on all these repairs so that they could renew their insurance policy. And then at the end of the term of that, um, you know, then they could, you know, give the deed back to me or something like that. It, 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 at that point, I felt that the seller had misled me on a lot of different things. Um, and basically that first, you know, about the year and a half that I owned that, I was going over there probably about three times a week, um, mm. fixing stuff, you know, an electrician, they want $120 to fix a 57 cent outlet you can <laughs> yeah. get out and I could do it in, in 10 minutes. And yeah. so I had a property manager on site, but he wasn't a professional property manager. It was just a, you know, a friend of mine I, I knew and he, he was doing an okay job, but the type of tenants that are there, it was in an A area, but the type of tenants that are there, they basically, um, you know, they're holding down two jobs. So if the second job is giving them 20 hours a week and it gives them 10 hours a week, then, you know, then they only have six out of the 800 of the rent. Yep. Then they've got to go to, uh, you know, a charity or something else to try to get the other 200 bucks. So what it does is it increases your bookkeeping cost and increases um, your times to collect. Yeah. Uh, and so what, so what ended up happening in the end is, you know, I ended up consulting an attorney and I, I gave the property back to him. Um, the attorney said, basically, you know, I, I, I had, you know, signed as a guarantor on the loan, but basically there's a law in Georgia where, um, you know, it's a statute of frauds. If someone induces you to enter into a contract under false pretenses, uh, then basically it can, uh, rule that contract invalid. Yeah. Um, and so basically, by I mean, what they had done is basically committed fraud. They basically took this line of credit from their house and made it seem like they were getting full deposits in their bank for their business when, when they weren't just to try to, you know, sell a property or get them, get the problem off of themselves. The, the attorney basically told me, you know, I could sue them, try to get a judgment, you know, that could take up to six months or a year, a lot of legal fees. And I would have spent a lot of time and money and I still might not be able to collect. So they just advised to cut my losses and move on from it. Yeah. All right. uh, and so basically that's what I did. I, you know, I maybe lost maybe, you know, probably six or 7,000 on that deal. So it wasn't too bad. Um, you know, better than it could have been. Yeah. I, I could have been, could have been a monstrosity, but I learned a lot from that. I mean, it, the, the biggest thing I learned too is, on that particular street, it's in an A location, um, but there's about, you know, 25 quads on that street, four units. And even if you have an A location, the other investors had, you know, different levels of debt service. They bought at the height of the market or they didn't want to put any repairs into the other buildings. And so uh, they would just reduce the rent 
and not fix anything. So, you know, we'd get called from tenants that would want to live in our place because it was nice and fixed up, but they wanted to pay the, you know, $750 rent instead of the $850 we were charging. But the place they were moving from on that same street was a dump. I mean, when it rained, the lights would flicker on and off and <laughs> had mold and had all nice. this crazy Slumber. Yeah, had all this crazy stuff, rats and all this stuff. And so, you know, what I learned from that experience is no matter how nice you make your unit, no matter how nice the area is, if you've got other property building owners around you, you know, it's still going to adversely affect your investment. Cause I had people that said they love the area, but when they drove down the street to get to my building, I love my building, the other buildings that were run down, um, they just didn't want to rent there. Well, yeah. that's, I mean, I guess that worked uh, to your, to your benefit. Um, let me, let me ask you a couple, a couple of things here. First, uh, what really quickly, what, what's an A location? Uh, you know, uh, an A location is just, you know, a uh, really strong, strong population, population growth, um, has a really strong, uh, economic development department where they've got a lot of things planned in the future. When you look at the future land use map and it goes out, you know, 15 or 20 years, they've got a, a lot of smart growth going on. Um, the, the population levels are growing. The median income is, is really high. The, uh, it's got really good, uh, schools, really great school systems. Um, a lot of parks, um, recreational activities, uh, medical facilities, okay. uh, churches, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and then presumably there's a B and a C and a D and how does that work? What does it go down to? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, you know, D is basically, you know, some people don't like the terms, but we just call them war zones. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it's basically a crap hole, just to be honest. With you. <laughs> I, I, I went in Atlanta a couple of years ago looking at some of those single family houses and there were some streets there that were just, I mean, I was driving in the middle of the day with the doors locked and I wouldn't even get out to walk on the sidewalk. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it was just that bad. I mean, uh, it's a crap some hole. Of the, yeah, some of the streets are just called. One of the streets was called Gun Alley Drive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. That's it was really awesome. called that. It, it, you know, it, it's bad when even the police don't go down those streets. Yeah, you know? yeah. All right. Uh, so that 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 would be the worst area. You know, B or C. It just kind of transitions to, um, you know, uh, more blue collar worker. They're working two jobs, or you know, kind of a. Um, a more industrial area. It, I mean, it's a solid and stable area. Uh, the D areas tend to have um, what I call violent crime versus nonviolent crime levels. So, yeah. you know, murders, rapes, shooting, you know, shootings, all this kind of stuff. If that's real high frequency, that's a lot different than an area that, you know, they might have a little bit of high crime, but it's like, you know, petty theft or it's, uh, um, you know, domestic disturbance or something like that, right, right. you know. Yeah. And obviously you, you advise people to stay away from the D areas, but what do, what do you think about B or C? Should, should I, as a new investor, should I run away from B and C and only stick with A? Or is it okay to kind of, you know, go slumming a little bit? Oh, jeez. No, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's nice, Brandon. <laughs> the opinions of my co-host are, are only... <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 B, the BNC areas are actually really good areas. You know, if, if you go to an A area, uh, a lot of those turn speculative. Uh, more people are buying on the appreciation factor and they're hoping for strong rent growth. 
Yeah. And so when they go in, the cap rates aren't going to be as strong. Um, and you're really not going to hit a lot of your target cash numbers. And so, you know, most investors, they like a, you know, a B or a C um, type building in, in an A or B area is yeah. what they usually try to go for. I mean, the, about the lowest you'll go is, you know, a C building, C area type thing. You just got to make sure when you go in that area that you get it for a really good price. So when you exit later on, that, that you won't have any trouble moving the property because there's always a buyer. Even for war zones, there's a buyer, sure. but you got to make sure your cap's strong enough on your exit to get out of it. Yeah, yeah. and we'll uh, talk about that. I, I definitely want to cover caps and, uh, and apartment yeah. valuation and all yeah. that. But anyway, I think you had a question, Josh. You know, we're talking about this show's you know focused on commercial real estate, and and I guess the the big question that I think a lot of people who are listening have is is commercial real estate only for those people with millions of dollars or or can anyone jump in and, and start getting involved in that side of the business? I, you do need more money to start in commercial. It depends on what you're talking about. Um, if you're talking about small mom and pop type commercial, like a, you know, a gas station that'll sell for $200,000 or um, trying to tie up some commercial land for development or something like that. Um, you know, little small warehouse, you, you can do those types of deals with, with uh, less money. If you're talking um, corporate rated type uh, tenants and stuff like that, um, you know, usually the purchase price is at least in the low millions and you do need, um, you know, a couple hundred thousand at least without a partner to, to get started with those. Okay. okay. That's good to know. Yeah. Cause I, I know, a lot of people, you know, look at, you know, things like triple net lease investing, which we're going to cover later. And uh, they think, oh, man, that sounds so nice. I want to get started right now. Can I do it with, you know, the $12 in my bank account? And so you're saying, <laughs> you're saying that that's probably not going to happen. No, that's, uh, you know, that that's that's a pipe dream. It's it, it's not going to happen. Um, Come I mean, on. <laughs> no, I, I, I heard this seminar, man. They said I can buy thousands of apartments for no money down. Right, right away. Oh yeah, yeah. That well, you know, the funny thing about that is, is, is in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, when the markets froze, sellers were desperate at that point. So you could approach them with no money down, or you know, all these kind of really crazy type um, scenarios. Uh, but now that the market's kind of thawed out a little bit, um, you can still find sellers to hold a second mortgage, or you know, even finance all the note or something like that. But uh, they really do want some money and some security into the deal on a larger apartment complex, even no money down. You know, you're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars on the environmental phase one survey, the site inspection, cost reserve stable, uh, the appraisal, closing cost. Uh, so, you know, you're really not getting in no money down. Yeah. Gotcha. That's one thing that a lot of people, when we, when you get to commercials, I'm, I was shocked. Like when I try to get any work done on my apartment complex, everything's more expensive. I mean, an appraisal is not the $500 that I pay for my house. It's, it's, you know, $5,000 for an appraisal. And, and everything is just significantly more expensive. Even an appraisal between the difference between a fiveplex and a fourplex is significantly more for me. So I'm, I was, I was shocked by that when I kind of started getting into that stuff. So, uh, well, let's, uh, let's actually move to talk more about the apartment complex thing, because that's one of my favorite topics in all of real estate investing. So I, I guess I want to know your opinion is it ridiculous for somebody to think about starting with apartments or should they start with a single family house? 
No, I mean, uh, you know, sometimes what you suggest, um, you know, getting a, you know, FHA loan and getting a, a quadruplex, uh, you know, four unit uh, that can get in with a little money down that way. Um, and they can, you know, really do well starting out with that. And that's only um, for one through four units, correct? Right. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the thing is with that, you've got to have a certain type of mentality to want to live next to your tenants. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm not that person. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, I, I've, from my clients that I have that I've learned from and other sellers with larger apartment buildings, they structure everything in a way to where they're really hands off. They just build everything into the cost model and, and they're hands off and they don't have to deal with any of that drama at all. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, so, so how should somebody start looking at an apartments? I mean, you know, are they listed on the MLS? Do they have to go directly to a commercial broker or through commercial sites like, you know, CoStar, LoopNet and so on and so forth? Yeah. Uh, CoStar and LoopNet, they're actually, you know, uh, they got bought out and they kind of merged the two companies, even though yeah. they keep them separate. Right. Um, CoStar is a lot more office type property. Uh, LoopNet is more where most of the, you know, apartment type stuff is on. Um, you'll find the bigger units on, on LoopNet, you know, 20 to, you know, two, 300 unit type buildings. Um, the smaller buildings, the one to four units, you'll see a few on there, but most of them, uh, you will usually find on the on the residential MLSs where they have homes listed and stuff like that. You'll find a lot more of the you know duplexes to quads on on those type of sites. Okay, so um, and yeah, I notice on my MLS, my local MLS, that sometimes I see apartment complexes on there. You know, seldomly um, there'll be anything up. I mean, I once saw a hundred and something unit, but that's very very rare. Usually, yeah, like you said, they're the the smaller properties, anything under 20, I, I see semi-often. I don't know if that's just because brokers put them on both places. I mean, probably it can't really hurt. So, uh, But how do you – so moving on to a kind of a complicated topic that I know we could spend an hour talking about, and it would really be helpful to have you know pencil and paper. But for an audio audience, how do we value an apartment complex? How do you determine how much it's actually worth? Uh, what's that look like? Well, for two to four units – um, the appraisers typically use the comparable sales approach. Uh, when you get into five units or more, they use the income approach, which is based on uh, the, the cash flow that the property is generating, uh, the income that's coming in. A very simple way to do it, uh, the simplest way that I found that's pretty safe is uh, basically you just take the gross expected income. So if you've got, you know, say you've got uh, four units and they're doing 400 a month, um, you take that and you multiply that times four, you get 1600 and then you multiply that times 12 months and that gives you your gross expected income. Then what you do is you take away about 50% of that. For That's 19,200 by the way. Okay. And so th- then you take your property management, uh, your operating expenses and your vacancy factor. And that's what makes up the 50%. Uh, what you're left over with then before your debt service, uh, because it's just like if you're buying it with cash, is your net operating income. And what you do with that is you would divide that by uh, purchase price to get your uh, cap rate. Okay. So, uh, and how much you're paying. And, you know, most people shoot for uh, a 10 cap or something. That's kind of a standard guideline. Now, my rule is 
if the landlord is paying any kind of water on the property or any, any kind of utilities like that, I bump it up to about 60% of costs uh, of the gross expected rents. And I, so, I found that pretty true too. My apartment complex is 24 units and that's exactly what it is. It, it runs right about 60% total because I pay so you, water. And- so you guys are saying that on these apartment complexes, instead of estimating 50%, um, of your expenses, like the fifty percent rule would say, you're gonna you're gonna actually increase that up to sixty percent. That's correct. Okay, got it. So, um, all right. So, real quick, let me recap what you just said there, just so everyone kind of gets it. You said four units. I'm doing this math as I do. Four units times four hundred a piece is sixteen hundred a month. Times that by twelve, and you get nineteen thousand two hundred per year. Uh, and then multiply that times the let's say. 50% rule or 60%. Let's go with 60%. So so we're going to actually go by times points 4, correct, Joel? Yes, I, that's what I do. I just do point so four times, zero. Yeah, because there's 40% remainder. So there's 7,680 left. So then we want to divide that by the purchase price. So let's say we paid uh, $100,000 for that property. That gives us a cap rate of 7.68%. Yeah, so, so at a 10 cap... You'd basically be looking at about seventy six thousand eight hundred. Okay. So if this property was listed at a hundred thousand and the average cap rate in the area was ten, I would say no, this property isn't worth a hundred. This is worth seventy six thousand eight hundred. Yeah, the only way I would look at that differently is uh, if it's a really old building. Sometimes they built those more spread out instead of on a smaller parcel of land. And so if it was something that was commercial frontage. Or if it had extra land that could be divided out, uh, or something where I could turn it into a higher, highest and best use, and I could get more money out of it, then, then it might make sense. Okay. Hey, yeah. Joel. Joel, really quick, can you can you just explain that though? The highest and best use. It is is it just what it sounds like? You know, the property you want to see how much money you can essentially milk out of it. Yeah, it's just determining. Uh, what would give you the most money and also it's in what kind of time frame is it going to give you that money? So, you know, you might say, Hey, you know, commercial development is going to give me this amount of dollars, but it's going to take me three years to see those returns where developer closes on the property versus I've got these other two or three exit strategies that I could get the money back within a year. So what's more important to me is it getting this higher return over three years or is it going this other strategy uh, for the second highest and best use and getting my money back within six months or a year? Okay. Getting rid of this property. So you, you have to factor that. Um, th- that comes into play when looking at a, at a property. Okay. Gotcha. Cool. And, and on, on top of that, then I got, I got two thoughts that came to mind. First of all, one, just because I have to, I have to plug it because I spent a month of my life working on this thing is the, uh, the buy and hold calculator from bigger pockets. I actually put in all this cap rate stuff in there and so you can figure out how much a property is worth based on that. Uh, so if you want to check that out, biggerpockets.com slash calc. Also, I will put in the show notes here on biggerpockets.com slash show 47, uh, a few different articles that I really like for ex- like figuring out all this work. So if you're really confused right now and you want to learn more about cap rates and how to figure out value of multifamily properties, I will link to a few of my favorite articles. So check it yeah, out, biggerpockets. We have a lot of good content on, on the topic uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and it is kind of confusing, but once you kind of understand it, it, it's like I said, it's one of my favorite things in all of real estate investing is this whole topic, especially the topic of 
adding value. So I, I want to kind of move that way a little bit. I, I think you can call it a value add. Is that right, Joel? Yes. Yeah. So you have uh, in multifamily, you basically have kind of three segments. You have the fully performing property, which is, you know, 85 to 100 percent occupied. You have the semi-performing, uh, you know, value add. That's kind of the sweet spot where stuff's maybe between 40 and 70 percent occupied. And then you have uh, most of the, you know, you consider it vacant properties. E even if they're 10 or 20 percent occupied, they're basically vacant. You're going to have to get those tenants out of there when you start rehabbing everything. So what is, what's the value? You, you know, the value play comes in when you buy a property that's not fully rented, correct? Yeah. Or, you know, it could be something like, you know, someone really old owns the property and they've had it for 20 or 30 years and it's fully performing, but the rents are low for the market and they just haven't updated anything with the property. So there, there's other type of value added plays that aren't necessarily related to um, occupancy only. Sure. Um, but the reason they go towards uh, most of the investors I know, they have what's called a sweet spot. And basically, it's properties that are about 40 to 70% occupied. If, if it's 75 or 80% occupied, the the person who's holding the, the note, the bank, um, they aren't that desperate to take a hit on it yet. The sellers that own the property, they're still believing that it's going to be turned around and can go up to, you know, 85, 90% and it'll be fully performing again. So there's not much motivation for them at that point. Um, when it's 40 to 70% occupied, it's kind of turned a corner, um, starting to get in disrepair. The sellers is cutting, you know, pest control services, lawn care, all this kind of stuff to quit hemorrhaging money and they stop taking care of the property. But there's not that really that much damage done to the interior units yet. So your rehab costs are going to be less going in and you'll have some cash flow while you're rehabbing the units um, versus a, a property that's maybe 20 or 30% occupied or totally vacant. Sometimes those are gutted down to the studs. The copper's been torn out. Um, the windows, roof, parking lot, everything needs to be redone. And, you know, you can put 10, 12,000 a unit into those versus, you know, two or 3,000 a unit into the ones that haven't been ripped apart yet. So, yeah. so, other, other than you know the being concerned about the cost of repairs and things like that, which obviously is is certainly going to be a concern. Uh, why why should somebody care? And and I've got a point in, in asking that. So, you know, the uh, commercial properties are are valued based upon income. Is that correct? Yes, they're they're based on the the income and. Uh, what stuff's trading at cap cap rate wise in the area? Okay, so ultimately, if I were to take an apartment complex and increase the income, uh, then by doing so, unlike a residential property, um, I'm directly going to see a an increase in the quote value of that property. Is that correct? Yeah, we call it a, a forced appreciation or forced equity play. Yeah, um, and and basically. Um, yeah, you're, you're increasing the income. Now, Now the key is, is when you go into one of those type of properties, typically um, the way that they do this is they'll try to approach the bank first um, to finance them on the deal short term for, you know, 12 to 18 months or something like that while they're, you know, rehabbing it, getting it fully performing again. And then at the end of that 12 to 18 months, they'll either retire the debt with that bank 
um, and refinance, or they'll sell off the property to you know realize their uh, forced appreciation. Gotcha. Yeah. Just illustrate an example. Just I like to illustrate examples. So uh, the twenty-four unit that I bought was fifty percent occupied when when I bought it. The owners had taken it back in foreclosure. It, they hadn't owned it in like eight or nine years. So I bought it at fifty percent, and I bought it at the value of being fifty percent occupied. And so then when I bought it, I went and fixed each unit up one at a time and slowly brought the value up. Now I'm you know, slowly working towards a refinance at the new higher value. So that that's like what you're talking about here, right, Joel, about the value play? Yeah, and, and the key is really um, you want your exit cap to be stronger than what the market offers. So in other words, if, if, if you're going in cap rate as a um, – in eight, you stabilize it, and when you do your resale projections and your equity minus your commissions and resale costs and all that, you know, a year, year and a half down the road, if you project the going selling cap rate in that market is going to be a um, 10, then you really want yours priced at about an 11 cap or something like that. Because typically what I'm seeing right now is most of the buyers want to um, – have the seller hold back a second, you know, a 10 or 20% second mortgage. And if the bank's wanting a 70% loan to value, that way the, the buyer's only having to put down 10 to 15% of their own money, their cash versus dropping 25 or 30% down. What that does is that increases their cash on cash returns. Now for someone in your situation, Brandon, uh, where you're trying to re- realize all that forced appreciation, if a buyer comes to you and says, I want you to hold a 10 to 15% second, and then you've got your real estate agent commissions on top of that and your closing costs and everything else, that's about 20 to 25% of what you were going to take away for your profit to put in another property. That's now eaten up by holding the second in your resale costs. And so you're not going to want to, a lot of value add type players don't want to hold a second for that reason because it eats up all their profit. That's so, forced. so is that, I mean, is the, the quote value add play, I mean, to me, it sounds like just a, you know, a little more quote unquote elegant flip. I mean, you're flipping the property regardless, right? You're buying it, you're fixing it, you're getting that cap up and you're reselling it. Is that, is that right? Yeah. You, you just have to be careful uh, on your rents. So if, if you think the rents are going to be um, 475 to 550 in the area, you don't want to push top rents upon the rehab. Yeah, you'll have a bright, uh, you know, brand new product, um, but you want to kind of be kind of in the middle of that because you want the most tenant applicants for the best quality product, just like when you're selling a house you're flipping, um, so that you can screen for the best possible tenants to go in your units um, uh, for the rehab. You, you, what, what typically happens is on the larger rehabs that are, you know, 100, 150 units, um, they'll do all their projections with a lower rent in mind. So, you know, if market rents 525, they'll rehab their units and they'll put it out there for a rent rate of 475. That accelerates how many units they're filling per month to get it stabilized faster so that they have it fully occupied in a sooner number of months so then they could sell it off faster or refi faster out of the property. Okay. All right, cool. Well, I, I have two uh, quick last questions for you on the apartment thing. Uh, first of all, uh, real basic. You mentioned it's a it's a your your local cap rate. There's an average cap rate. How do you figure that out? What's what's my local cap rate? Is that the same as what it is where you are? Uh, you usually um, 
there's a couple of different ways. I mean, you can, uh, sometimes your tax assessor website will have, um, sales records on it or your local residential MLS will have a, uh, tax assessor feature that your agent can use or a sold feature. Um, LootNet also has, um, a sold feature on there as well, where you can look at comparable recent sales. Um, the larger buildings, you know, instead of finding a comp that's one or two months old, uh, you might find a comp that's six months old or seven or eight months old because the larger properties don't sell as frequently as, you know, the, the duplexes to the quads do. Yep. Um, and so you have to adjust a little bit, you know, if you think the cap rates a seven, uh, but you think that the market's kind of shifted um, 40 or 50 basis points, um, then, you know, you kind of make your adjustments for that. And, and for everyone listening, um, what a basis point is, is um, that's a percentage of the cap rate. So basically, if I'm saying 30 or 40 basis points, instead of being a seven cap rate, I'm talking about if I say 30 basis points, it would be 7.3 cap rate. So okay. it's going up 30. So 100 basis points makes up 1%. Gotcha. Okay. All right, cool. All right. So then last question on apartment stuff is for anybody who wants to get started with apartments, what is the very first step? Like what should people do that are listening to this podcast? Where should they go from here? Well, uh, you know, one thing they can do is they can uh, meet up with other local investors in the area that, that have invested and can show them the um, positives and negatives. And, um, you know, they really need to determine um, how much cash they want to allocate toward their first property. And that'll kind of determine um, what level of property that they're going to buy. Um, so, you know, basically if someone has um, 300,000 cash to put down and a hundred thousand in reserves, if the seller held back a 15% second mortgage on a 75% loan to value, then the buyer would be putting down $300,000 in that situation. So that means that they could afford up to a $3 million apartment building. You know what I think might, might be helpful for folks? You know, we're, we're running through quite a few numbers. I'm wondering if, if uh, one of us um, can, uh, at least for the purpose of the show notes, at biggerpockets.com slash show 47, can kind of write up some of these examples that we've talked over. Um, I think just having people uh, have something written down in front of them might might be uh, handy. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, you, you know, commercial, you have bigger numbers and bigger amounts, and there's a lot more due diligence involved. And so, it, I mean, it does get a little bit more complex than residential. Yeah. So, anyone listening, you know, uh, we'll we'll make sure to put something together for you in the show notes. Um, speaking of uh, finding local investors, uh, another place they can do it is on the, the uh, uh, Bigger Pockets Meet page, uh, which is our, our networking page where you can find members. It's just biggerpockets.com slash meet. And uh, you can find uh, local investors in your area or any in area that you're investing in um, via, via that page. So check that out. Joel, one, one of the big things that, that I know Brandon and I were really excited about in getting you on board here was... Uh, the the topic of triple net investing, I think, uh, you know, it's it's got this sex sex appeal, so to speak. Uh, you know, uh, you know. Oh yeah, she's pretty with all the right curves. There you go. <laughs> there you go, man. So 
let's 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 talk about that. What what is triple net investing, and why why is it sexy? Well, it it, it it's sexy for people because it is totally hands off. Um, you don't have to worry about you know tenants, toilets, and termites, um, people's drama and their life issues and but what I they've like gone toilets. through. Their life. They should call it TTT yeah. investing then. No. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> A lot of it depends on, you know, the, the general cycle of, of people investing. When they start out with a small amount of money, they're typically going toward um, rougher areas, single family houses to get the highest yield that they can. And then they usually go to the duplexes or quads and then they go to the larger apartment buildings, commercial. And usually where they end up is in triple net. Um, now, if someone has a large amount of cash from um, stocks or, you know, the bank account or CDs or just anything else. And they don't really know much about real estate, but, you know, they're a, they're a doctor or a lawyer or a high income type professional. Um, the triple net leasing is very attractive to them, to them because what they don't have a lot of is time. Um, they, they need a lot of, um, you, you know, they're, li- they're looking for the tax depreciation and they're looking to keep up with inflation and build up equity over time. So, I'll just give you an example. Um, you know, say a doctor making two hundred thousand dollars a year income. Well, with their surgeries and their practice and everything else, they don't have time for uh, you know doing a value add on an apartment building or you know doing these other types of things with houses to try to approve appreciation and all this kind of stuff. They they really don't care about that. They're making so much money to support their life. Um, they're looking for the tax write down and to just build. Um, safe returns over time. And, you know, in a bank account with a CD, they might be getting 1% a year versus triple net. If you get a 7% cap rate or seven and a half going in, and then you add your tax depreciation on that, which we we call the tax equivalent yield, um, you can get double digit returns and be hands off. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so, you know, to to dumb it down for those of us who uh, you know uh, may not fully get it, triple net lease investing is investing in commercial properties where you don't have to do really anything. I mean, you're literally it's it's you're buying the frame of the building, and you know somebody's kind of taking care of management. The tenants are taking care of maintenance and everything else, and and essentially. Uh, you're not going to see exemplary returns, but you'll see pretty pretty above average, uh, you know, ten percent or so returns potentially um, when it's all said and done uh, from 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 these kinds of deals. Yeah, and and one of the things you have to think about is, uh, you know, people with higher incomes or just want to put it in a safe place, um, they're not really concerned about the higher returns. What they're wanting to do is they're wanting to preserve wealth at that point. You know, if you have $50,000 and you make $60,000 a year at your job and you're trying to quit your job, you need the highest yield possible to get out of the rat race. Yeah. But if you're making a couple hundred thousand a year and you've got 500000 or 700000 or a million, you want to put it in the safest thing possible. If you're getting 9 or 10% with your tax write down, um, you don't really care about getting a 14 or 15% return because you don't want to put all that money, that wealth at risk for that extra two or three or four percent. It's not worth it to you to possibly put in a bad investment and lose that money. Gotcha. Yeah. So so what is what does a triple net investment look like? I mean, is that is that buying a, a the candy store on the corner? Is that buying a, a building where Walmart's going up? Is that uh, buying uh, I don't know. I mean a mall what what does a triple net investment look like? 
Okay. Well, in, in triple net, the first part is STNL, which is single tenant net lease. That's for a freestanding building that is not connected to anything else. Um, so that would be stuff like a, um, a dollar store, a bank, a medical office, a restaurant, a pharmacy such as Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, um, that kind of thing. Um, you know, with a single tenant net lease, um, there's so many variables to it with the kind of return that, that you want. Um, they break it into a bunch of different categories. So if you want a um, pharmacy, um, the way those are typically structured is those are more for um, retirement plans. Um, you know, when someone's going to pass away, estate planning, um, those are typically 25 year leases in the primary term and they don't have um, any rent bumps, any rent escalations each year no, in, you didn't, in the lease. You didn't misspeak there. You really mean 25 year leases, right? So we're not talking month right. to month or a one year lease like a residential, 25 years. Well, that's stability yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. As far as pharmacies go, they're the most stable because they have, some of them have a hundred year history. So lenders love them. So, you know, you can get in with those with, you know, some, like 10% down or 5% down because the, the lenders love those properties. And, you know, for instance, Walgreens, you know, you're talking a multi-billion dollar corporation, um, you know, that's about as good as it gets. Now, you, you know, your returns are less there um, versus a, you know, restaurant or something like that. Um, you know, restaurants typically have a, a lower shelf life. So even, you know, say a Red Lobster or a Longhorn Steakhouse or something, um, those brands might typically have a 30-year or a 40-year shelf life at the, at the longest, yeah. um, you know, before, because uh, that industry is constantly churning. So, you know, with Triple Net, you have what I call the corporate tenants and the mom and pop type tenants. The mom and pop type tenants, you can have a Triple Net lease on a, you know, $200,000 gas station, um, but that's, Typically not what my clients invest in. They typically like the corporate tenants because they're they're more stable. Um, the mom and pop type stuff where you just kind of create a triple net lease for, it's kind of a mixed use type product. And when you try to get a loan on it, um, you don't have as many lenders competing to loan out on that type of property because it can be hard to dispose of if something happens to it down the road. Well, here's, a, here's my question. And I've never really fully understood why this is. Why does Walgreens rent? Doesn't that seem like silly that Walgreens, a billion dollar company, why don't they just buy the building? Why are they paying some investor money to rent? What What's the deal? Okay, so what Great happens, question, by the way. Yeah, thank, thank what you. happens is um, with all, while these companies love triple net is because, you know, with the land, they might purchase, you know, Walgreens always wants corner locations. So they might purchase the land for a million dollars for that acre, acre and a half. Then it costs them with their development crew you know, another $2 million to, to build a building or something. So they might be at $3 million. Well, you know, Walmart's not in, the, uh, not Walmart, Walgreens isn't in the real estate business. And so um, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, FASB, um, basically you have a write-off where you can, um, on your accounting books, you can actually take it as a loss paying rent every month. And so versus them owning 
the actual property. And so for someone like Walgreens, they would rather be taking their money and re-imaging existing stores that are older and great locations or putting that money toward developing more new stores rather than owning the real estate themselves okay. with the so, tax right down. And so it's, it's a better return on their investment to be reinvesting in their own business rather than dropping $3 million of their own money permanently in real estate. Right, exactly. Uh, you, you know what they're the best at is is running their business and their specific asset class. That's you know returning the profits to their shareholders that invest in their stock on their company. You know they they they're not focused on the real estate aspect of it. Gotcha, gotcha. So so the, you know that's the the single tenant uh, net lease is is kind of the obvious is is there like a multi tenant net, net lease? Do they have like strip malls that are triple net lease or things mm-hmm. like that? Yeah, you have a multi-tenant net lease, MTNL, and uh, you know one of the advantages to those is um, they haven't compressed as much, so the caps are higher on those. So you might find a, you know, uh, a ten-unit strip center um, where it might have some corporate tenants and it might have some mom and pop in there on the on the triple net lease, um, and you can even increase your debt on that. So. You know, in the single tenant at lease space, the way those transact, uh, you're generally putting, you know, if it's a restaurant or something else, you're putting, you know, 25, 30% down on the multi tenant net lease. Say they want 25% put down. Uh, sometimes a lender will let you allow you to have um, secondary debt, a mezzanine debt, uh, a B piece uh, loan on the property. So, you know, your, your B piece loan might be nine or 10% interest rate on that smaller piece that's 10 or 15%. But then you as the buyer, instead of putting 25% down, you're only having to put down 10% to buy that strip center. Gotcha. Um, Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, so tell me, I mean, this sounds, sounds really interesting. You know, it's, it's not dealing with tenants. I mean, I guess you got to find them, but once you find them, you're pretty much done. Uh, What do we do? You know, Hey, I want to, I want to go and buy, a Walgreens, you know, in, in Denver, I want to go and I don't know, find a strip mall somewhere around. How do you find someone that's selling something triple net? Is it, is it labeled that way or, or do you have to kind of, you know, weed through things? How does that work? Well, you won't really find, uh, you know, signs out in the front on commercial properties because, uh, it'll spook the, the tenants, customers. Um, sometimes even if you own a piece of property, you don't want people, um, knowing you're putting it out on the market. So sometimes we'll have off-market properties. So uh, for instance, you'll, you can find some triple net properties uh, on LoopNet. Um, you can, uh, if you have connections with uh, sellers, you can look up their, their addresses and do mailers to them. Um, you can have relationships with developers that might've held a property for five or 10 years instead of selling it off right away. And they're, they're a seller of a triple net um, property. Um, when you go on LoopNet, what a lot of people don't know is when you go on LoopNet, you only see, you know, a certain small percentage of the properties, unless you're a premium paying member, you know, paying 90 or a hundred dollars a month. Um, you don't get to see all the properties. That's how LoopNet creates their money is by either making you a premium searcher or a premium lister on, on the broker side. So, you know, if you don't want to pay that money, um, you know, are you looking for someone that's knowledgeable about triple net? You know, you can use someone um, like me that's a broker that specializes in it. 
um, that already has a premium membership, is already spending that money, um, already has the connections to the developers and the properties. Um, like for instance, I had my secretary um, look up, you know, all the dollar stores, the addresses, all the Walgreens, all the Rite Aids, all the CBSs, and we have the numbers and owners of all those different properties that we mail out to, um, so that when they're ready to sell. You know, they call me. I also have relationships with other brokers. It's, it's more of a specialized field. It's not like residential where you have, you know, a million agents trying to sell a house or something. It's, it's a highly specialized field. You have small groups of different brokerages that specialize in it. Um, and we each talk to each other and, you know, they present um, off-market properties to me or stuff before they put it on the listing service because they know that I um, qualify my, my buyers and educate them ahead of time. That's great. Um, That's great. So you're saying so, find a broker. Is your yeah. Bottom line. Well, an, an <laughs> yeah, an experienced broker now, because you know, it, it's one thing when someone has $20,000 and they're putting it down on a house and yeah, that's a substantial amount of money, but say you have a, you know, 500,000 or a million dollars of stocks, or you had some money sitting in a bank, um, you really don't want that could be your life savings. You know, it could be your family's life savings. You don't want to um, go through someone who's not experienced in that specific asset class where they miss a couple of mistakes. They could end up costing you dearly. Yeah, yeah. So, so really quick, and, th- and then we're going to have to move on. What What are the downsides to to triple net investing? Well, uh, a lot of it comes down to um, a lot of it comes down to the type of tenant. You know. Um, when you underwrite a tenant and you do your due diligence on them, a mom and pop type tenant is, uh, has, has a lot more risk. Um, you know, they might only own one location or a few locations or, or something like that. So the, the downside is that the property at some point could go dark, um, which means the business shuts down. Now you've got to figure out what are you going to do with that building or location? How are you going to repurpose it? So, you know, Walgreen going dark, it's, it's not really going to happen. Um, they might move to a new location and not renew their option period after, you know, 20, 25 years when their five or 10 year option kicks in, they might move to a different area. But really the location of the property, if you, if you buy the right location, you're going to be insulated because, you know, if that tenant moves out, there's five or six other tenants that are clamoring to get that corner location. And it's going to be easily re-rentable if it does go dark. That makes sense. Yeah. If it's a dollar store, sometimes they put those in off the wall places off of a commercial corridor and it could be down the road and it's um, sheet metal constructions on the front and the the back, um, you know, cheaply done. And you're, you know, you're going to have more problems with those type of properties if they, if they go dark because they're kind of off the beaten path and your second or third generational tenant that comes in, isn't going to pay the same kind of money that that the dollar store was paying. So, so the key with with everything else then is really location and location, location. Yeah, and and, and the credit of the tenant, how strong they are. There, there's basically um, four levels of strength of a tenant. Basically, um, you know, the smallest level is a is a franchisee. Um, you know, say say a Hardee's, and they're just a franchisee, and only that one location, and they're doing a guarantee you might find their cap rates a little higher. You get it in an eight and then their annual rent bumps are, you know, two and a half percent or something like that. Going up the next level from that, you could have a um, franchisee of a Hardee's that owns uh, 
you know, 50 locations and has been in, been in business for 10 or 20 years. Um, and they, they can offer a lot more stability. Uh, they can warranty up their other properties to secure the lease um, and, and give you a lot more security. You know, they might be a two and a quarter rent bump a year or something like that. Then the next highest level is say Hardy's itself that has a couple of thousand locations, but they, for the, the state of Georgia, for instance, they might have um, 300 locations where the lease is only guaranteed by the 300 locations they have in the state of Georgia. Um, and so the parent company isn't guaranteeing the lease in that situation. The subsidiary is that they've created, which is, you know, the 300 um, restaurants at that point. And then the most security is actually um, a fully corporate guaranteed lease backed by the parent company. Gotcha. Um, those are, that's the highest strength you can get. Now, when it comes to the annual rent bumps, you might find the cap rate might be 50 or 100 basis points lower. And you might find the rent bumps are only, you know, one to one and a half percent a year escalations. But the quick tip on that is, is that the, the great thing about triple net is it's totally hands off. But the other great thing is if you're getting one and a half or two percent a year, you're actually getting that increase because the tenant is paying for everything versus an apartment complex. Your rents might go up 3% a year, but if you're paying water and all this other type of stuff, those expenses will go up too, offsetting your gains. Maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. So it, where you don't have that in triple net. So when that you get, sense. you know, 2%, you're getting a true 2%. That's, I never thought about that way. That that makes a lot of sense. So, cool. All right. So I think we should move on. Yeah, no, listen, I mean, lots of fascinating stuff. And, and I think if people have questions on this stuff, they can definitely hit you up on the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 47. And of course, Joel uh, likes to spend his days when he's not working, trolling around the bigger pockets for him. <laughs> so I'm sure if you put a, a post about triple net, he's got an alert set up for it and, and he'll jump in and help you out. Um, but uh, it's time to, to hit up... Uh, it's time for the fire round. Yeah, you like that? Yeah. Nice. Beautiful. Yeah. All right, fire round. These oh, questions yeah. all come from the Bigger Pockets forums. These are questions that, Joel, you've probably even seen because uh, you're on there a lot. So here we go. First question Mixed use properties. What's your opinion? And what is it, first of all, for those who don't know? Uh, Mixed-use property is where you have something that's not a defined specific asset class. So, you know, you might have, you know, um, commercial storefront on the bottom and residential on the top or something like that. So it's a, it's a combination of different asset classes into uh, one building or location. Um, there, I, I would save those for the experienced investors. Um I would really, you know, if you're used to buying houses, apartments are probably going to be the easiest transition you're going to understand um, to, to move to first. Um, or if you want some passive, you can go triple net or something else. When you, when you get into mixed use, uh, there's not as many lenders for that product. Um, it's more risky. When something goes bad, it's harder to sell off and dispose of. So um, there's a lot more knowledge required and there's a lot more risk with mixed use properties. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. All right, so his uh, next question, when you buy a multifamily property, do you need to sign all new leases and should you? Uh, well, uh, it, it, it depends on um, 
what, what was the what what are the existing leases that are in place you know uh are, are they just on a continuum month to month uh the leases that you would be taking over um you know were they poorly written uh is there a lot of problems in in, in the leases that you would be taking on as the new owner um, if, if they're really crappy leases that are detrimental to you as a, as a new property owner, uh, then definitely, you know, part of the condition of buying the property is you would want to go in and have the tenants agree to, um, those new conditions of the property. Because if, you know, if they don't, you're inheriting those problems, um, and you think you're going to get a certain return going in, um, and you buy wrong, uh, then your returns are going to be diminished. So, you know, definitely looking at leases is is a key component with multifamily or, or, or anything. Uh, that goes, uh, just a quick note, that goes for, you know, triple net as well. Uh, you know, uh, you, you have to review these leases to make sure there's not um, any hidden time bombs in there. Before you buy, make the purchase. Right, before. Yep. Yeah, it's, 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 it's part of your due diligence. Uh, yep. Yeah, just, just, uh, Real quick, 30-second thing uh, that I didn't mention on the triple net. Uh, basically, you got three segments. You got the ground lease, which is, you're, you know, you're basically leasing out uh, the land. You don't have any tax depreciation there. You've got a double net lease, which, you know, the landlord is responsible for. Sometimes it can be utilities or the parking lot or the roof or the structure. Um, and then you've got absolute triple net lease, which you're not responsible for anything. And, you know, you own the building and the land. On the double and triple net, you get the tax depreciation. On the ground lease, you don't. But you always have to review the leases to look for any hidden problems. Great, great advice. Okay, yeah. All right, so last week on the show with John Klaus, uh, Podcast 46, he mentioned a phrase uh, actually referring to Jerry Puckett, which was show 21, the market like a wholesaler. And what he mentioned, what he meant was when you market for properties like uh, a wholesaler would maybe through direct mail, you can get really good deals. I'm wondering, um, I'm kind of adapting this from a question on the forums, but can you do direct mail the same way a wholesaler might for, uh, let's say apartment buildings or commercial properties like this? Um, I mean, you can, uh, the difference being the sellers that you're talking to, are usually very sophisticated. So, you know, if you're sending a letter to someone on a single family house, you know, it might be a forty or fifty thousand dollar house that they inherited, or it might be, you know, someone that owns a house and they don't really know anything about real estate. You know, when you're conversing with someone on a commercial property that calls you wanting to sell their three million dollar apartment building, um, you know, they're they're usually a pretty sophisticated investor that built up their capital to a point to where they were be able to buy that building in the first place. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Next question. If a property is master metered, meaning all the properties are run, uh, the, the properties run on the same power, all the units uh, paid by the landlord, how tough or expensive is it to, to go and rewire it? Uh, well, the, the first question you want to ask is, do you even want to do that? Because, what you got to know for that area is uh, what's customary for the tenants in that area. So, you know, if there's 25 large apartment buildings within a three mile radius 
and it's customary for the whole area for the landlords to include all the tenants' utilities. You go out and pay all this money to separate everything out, and guess what? All your tenants just go right down the street where all the utilities are included. Yeah, yeah. you know. So, so the, that's the key. Uh, now, if you own, if you're looking to buy an older building in an area where most of the buildings, the the tenants, is separated out, and the tenants pay your own utilities, and you just got an old building that was never converted, then in that sense, it, it, it would make sense to spend the money to do that because the tenants in that area are conditioned to paying their own utilities. Is there like a set, is there like a per unit price that sometimes it might be or that just too varied? I mean, it's just, it, it's just too varied. I mean, it, you, you know, with a bigger apartment complex, you could have a, a you could have a, a, a length of the run um, that can make stuff go into, you know, um, 40 or, you know, $50,000. Just a, a quick example is, uh, some of the older apartment buildings used, uh, um, galvanized pipes as the water main coming from the street to the buildings. And, you know, they rust from the inside out and the lower, the water pressure keeps getting lower and lower. So even if you put all new plumbing in the buildings, the main itself won't carry the water pressure to the buildings because it's backed up. So in that case, if you've got to, you know, cut open the water line and half the water line is running through your paved parking lot. You now have to use a cut saw, cut open that whole parking lot, take that line out, put a new line in and then repave the parking lot and then put all the dirt back down. Depending on the length of the run, you know, you could be talking $40,000 for something like that. Um, you, you know, uh, so. So there's just too much, it, too many variables in there. to really. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the size of the building, you know, what's existing there depends on the, local city or county, if they'll let you do separate meters, or if they say, no, we won't allow you to do separate meters and you got to get like a private water company that puts meters on your property, but you're still responsible for the bill, but you bill the tenants, yeah. um, you know, directly and try to recover, you know, not all of them will pay you back uh, when they're supposed to, and you'll have to sit collections on them and <laughs> stuff like that. So it, it, it's just, it, it just varies, but it, that's why it's so important. I mean, you know, if you're going to put your money at risk, really get with another investor or, you know, someone that's a broker and an investor um, and that really knows the business. Um, like, for instance, I, I don't know much about industrial. So I have a friend of mine that's been an industrial for 28 years and that's all he does. And someone calls me about industrial. I'll send them to him because I, you know, I know the basics of that, but really multifamily and triple net leasing is what I do day in and day out. So, you know, that's where I'm going to help people. The other stuff, I'm just not experienced yeah. enough in it. And, that, and that's a, that's a good tip right there too, is yeah. Find somebody who's experienced yep. in it. So. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Next question of the fire round is, you know, uh, people, real estate agents typically make on a residential house, like 6% commission is kind of the, the general number. I'm wondering what is that general number? For commercial real estate, is it six percent? You mentioned earlier you made thirty-four thousand dollars, whatever. Is that is that still the same? Uh, in, in commercial, it's it's different. It, it varies on a, a on a host of different factors. Um, if it's a, uh, you know, if it's like a FDIC property or, or a foreclosure type thing, those listing brokers sign a, agreements typically at a reduced commission a little bit. Um, so they might be at four and a half or five percent total instead of six or um, sometimes if you get a say there's a, a real estate investment trust to read on triple net leasing that owns um, 30 O'Charlie's restaurants in their portfolio 
and they say, uh, hey, Joel, I want to list, uh, you know, we want to dispose of 10 of these properties and they're going to be, uh, you know, two and a half million dollars a piece uh, for a total of 25 million uh, for disposing of all these properties for us. Uh, we want a, a reduced amount for that. Um, so in those situations, um, the amounts, you know, typically go down, you know, you, you know, it may be, if it's a million sales price or two million and it's a private seller, you can still get like a six or you know five and a half or something like that if you double ended it. Um, when you start getting up into five, ten million dollar properties, stuff like that, you know, the t- total commission amounts might go down to like four or four and a half percent or something like that. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. Uh, last question. Where's the best place to get a commercial loan? How do you do that? And should you pay uh, I'll, I'm gonna add to that, and should you be paying any fees up front uh, for said loans? Do not pay any fees up front. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the, the, the residential, you know, in residential, uh, before it was highly regulated from all the foreclosures, there was, a, there was really a lot of fraudsters out there. Yep. And when residential got highly regulated, guess where they moved to? Commercial. Yeah, they, there are so many commercial scumbags out there. I mean, there's, yeah. no, there's really no other way of saying it. And, 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 you know, we see it, I'll see it on the site and we'll, we'll try and, you know, get rid of them as quite quickly as we can. But, you know, there's all these, these guys who have these, you know, pay us the money up front and we'll, you know, hook you up with this great loan. Uh-uh. There's alternatives, right? Yeah, yeah. That's due diligence. You know, they'll call it all kind of crap due diligence fees. Um, insurance deposit, um, let's just call it a host of different, and sometimes what they'll do is they'll say, oh, there's no upfront fees. They'll get you an application process, and then halfway through, they'll they'll say, uh, oh, oh, well, by the way, there is this one little fee um, now that uh, we didn't know about that you need to pay before. Anytime someone wants you to put money somewhere, a, a good tip on that, have your attorney hold those specific funds they can send a verification letter to the uh, whoever this lender is or funder or whatever and says, here, this money's put aside in this account for this specific pur- uh, purpose, and here it is. And my attorney's holding it. My attorney will not release it until we close at the closing table. You know, um, it, it, all, all the scammers go away really fast. If you say you're not going to pay any upfront fees. Now, when it comes to um, bank financing, it really depends on what you want to do with the property. So in commercial, it's different than residential. Most of the banks do what's maybe like a five-year loan or a, or a 10-year learn, loan at the best uh, for a fixed rate term. Um, you won't really find, sometimes you can find um, 25 or 30-year loans on the commercial side, but the cap rate's higher. So uh, not the cap rate, the, the interest rate. So you know, if you go to a local bank, says I'll give you a five-year loan at 4.6% fixed over a 25-year amortization, you might find a 25-year product out there, but they might want 100 basis points higher. And they might say, if you prepay this loan any earlier than five or 10 years, there's a $300,000 prepayment penalty, defeasance penalty with this loan. And so, you know, knowing that you're getting longer term debt spread out over a longer period of time, but your interest rate is much higher, about 100 basis points higher. So when you go buy it, your cap rate, your spread between your debt service and your cap rate, that's going to make your cash flow lower because you're paying higher on your mortgage. Um, So you've got to balance everything out. Typically what I do is I tell people kind of the sweet spot is to get a regional bank 
because they'll go like a 10-year term. And uh, that's a pretty good amount of time to pay down the debt. And the basis points aren't that much higher, maybe 40 basis points higher where you can still cash flow well. Okay. Okay. So um, that, that all makes sense. And, and you know, the big, uh, big piece of information that, be, that really rings out to me is, you know, definitely, definitely be careful and avoid these guys because there's a ton of uh, the, the shady practitioners in the space these days. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, you, a lot of people aren't even a mortgage broker. They're, they, they get some course or become an affiliate of a company and, uh, you know, they want to take a point and this person takes a point and you've got four people trying to take a point in a chain and then none of them knows what they're doing. And a quick way to get rid of these people is say, what have you funded lately? Give me the addresses of it. Show me all your typical cost breakdown. If they go away and they don't respond, you have your answer. Or, or if they get... Uh, defensive. If they get defensive, that's another way of trying to control and manipulate somebody um, to, you know, try to extract a fee out of them, you know, to try to change you off the topic. So I've been running through that stuff with years and and for years. And so I I see those people a mile away, you know, just go directly to banks, you know, banks, um, like for instance, my uh, secretary, I had her call around to all the I believe there's a couple hundred banks in Georgia call around to every single bank and ask them um, versus them selling off the paper versus keeping portfolio loans that are in-house that they underwrite themselves. Um, So I'm building a database of, you know, all the different banks, what areas they lend in, if they have any in-house products that, you know, they're just not selling off the paper uh, on wall street um, with the buyback provisions, because the ones that are selling off the paper, um, you have to fit in this tiny little box to get approved for a loan because if it goes south later on on Wall Street with a buyback provision, they can force the bank to buy back that loan. Gotcha. All right. So, uh, hey, Brandon, do you have do you have anything you want to add to this, or uh, should we move forward? Uh, let's move on. But I want to announce that we actually have a kind of a cool thing here. Um, there's a guy who reached out to me. His name is JT Spangler. I hope I'm saying his last name right. And he actually recorded us a new uh, Famous Four jingle. So check this out. It's time for our Famous Four. Nice, nice. No, that's awesome, man. Very, very cool. Thank you, JT. We, uh, we, we, definitely, uh, we definitely dig the jingle, so we yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, follow him on Twitter at twitter.com slash JT Spangler, S-P-A-N-G-L-E-R. All right, and with that, our famous four. So, uh, famous. yeah, you want to start it, Josh? Famous four. No, we're not doing that anymore. Ah, this guy man, never, right. le- he never learns. Famous Joel. four. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right, Joel, what is your favorite real estate book? Uh, well, the, I've, I've, well, I've read so many of them. Um, I think, uh, you know, my, fa- my favorite resource is, is, is actually kind of crazy. It's uh, um, going through the uh, federal and state statute codes and, and reading all the different real estate sections. There's just so much information in there. It's just uh, um, a new one. I, that is I, a new one. You're kind of like a CPA type of guy there, Joel. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that. The, the next one I want to get and read that I've heard is uh, – uh, real high remarks. Uh, Brian was talking about it the other day. Was the uh, Ray Alcorn's commercial uh, book on real estate investing? Um, I, w- I want to get that one and 
try to work through that. I've heard that's really good. Gotcha. Gotcha. But 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 for for light weekend reading, you you recommend <laughs> folks go hit up the uh, local commercial statutes on real estate. Yeah, I mean it's actually it's it's actually not that hard to understand. I mean once you once you get in there and look at all the titles and it's broken down by title, then you can get down to the specific um, chapters on different things, and it's not that bad once you get the hang of it. Gotcha. Wow. Gotcha. Well, well I, I won't uh, really be linking to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll find some good ones in my weekend light reading. <laughs> all right. So now it's. I, but you know, I, my, all all joking aside, I bet you there's a ton of value in that stuff. It's. I'm sure. It, yeah. So cool. Something something we haven't heard before. Cool. All right. Next question of the famous four. What is your favorite non real estate like business book? Uh, I saw him in person uh, uh, years ago when I had my uh, pizza restaurant, um, and it's uh, Jeffrey Hitmer. Um, and it's uh, people don't want to be sold, but they love to buy. Okay, I haven't heard of that one. Interesting. Interesting. What's in, in ten seconds? What's the gist? Yeah, it, it's basically a mindset shift on how to create relationships and business with people in a way that um, you're not trying to hard sell them. Um, you're just connecting with them um, naturally um, in a way that wants them to keep doing business with you and developing the relationship where they're where they're drawn to you um, instead of repelled by what you're trying to do gotcha Um, it it gets more complicated than that but you you just have to kind of read the book to get the full examples and everything perfect no that's great that's great well uh and we will link to that and and these other books in the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 47 uh really quick so what do you what do you do for fun joel what's what are your hobbies uh let's see um i like to travel uh i like uh i enjoy martial arts um I should already be a fourth degree black belt. I'm a third degree black belt now on the Taekwondo side. Um, and I took Kung Fu for a number of years. And what I've been recently doing the last few years is uh, Krav Maga. It's a Israeli Secret Service self-defense, what they teach overseas. And it's basically a realistic self-defense-based program where you, you know, encounter multiple attackers, knives, guns, um, oh. you know, going outside with attacks and everything else. It's it's all reality based. Wow. Nice. nice, nice. Well, I know, I know. Uh, when Brandon and I went to this conference in St. Louis, he was he was trying to pick a fight with uh, a buddy of ours, Brandon, who's uh, rather you know rather big dude. <laughs> uh, I, I I wonder if you'll do that with Joel now. I might pick a fight with Joel at uh, whenever we have our next. Bigger Pocket Summit, which we'll have to talk about sometime, Josh. <laughs> how about the pressure? How about the pressure? Yeah, I got nice. to keep it up. All right. There you go. Final question of the fire round is, what do you believe sets apart the successful investors from those who uh, just give up? Uh, specifically referring to commercial investors that you see. Um, perseverance. Um, it, you know, real estate is like a, a, a roller coaster. Um, you know, it's going to have uh, fast lows and fast highs and, you know, where you're kind of coasting in the middle and you really have to do those things day to day, the tasks um, to make yourself successful without other people watching. Um, you just have to, you know, do things for yourself, uh, set those goals every day 
and, you know, run it like a business, not, not like a hobby, you know, like I'm going to do it an hour here, an hour there. You really have to lay everything out, follow an actionable plan and small steps. Those small steps will turn into um, big results over time. That's, that's good. That's good. Cool. Cool. Awesome. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we wrap this thing up? Joel, Joel, where can people find more about you? Where can we connect with you at? Okay. So, uh, you know, I can be found on bigger pockets as a, as a moderator, of course. And, uh, also my website is just www.awcommercial.com. So the name of my company is all world realty. That's my brokerage. So I just made the website, awcommercial.com. And, uh, you know, they can just email me or call me or whatever they like to do. Um, kind of the information we talked about today is very, very basic. I may have gone over on the triple net side, maybe 10% of the stuff. Yeah. Um, so typically a client contacts me, will converse through emails over a few months and it might take, you know, three, four, five, six months to find the right property that's for them and to where they fully understand um, how the process works and how to invest their money and how to find the right property. Right on, right on. Well, Joel, listen, we, we definitely appreciate having you on the, on the show. Uh, thank you so much for the time, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on Bigger Pockets. All right, all right. Thanks, guys. Uh, you know, Brandon needs to get back to work now. He's been, <laughs> he's been slacking for the last uh, hour and a half now, it seems. So. Yep, uh, you know, hamster will need to be run. Nice. Thanks, Joel. Nice, nice. All right, Joel, <laughs> take it easy. All right, see you guys later. Bye. All right, guys, that was our show with Joel Owens. Uh, I know, as always, my brain is busting. It's overflowing with, with lots of new stuff. I don't, I don't think we do a, a podcast without uh, uh, learning new things, even as, as hosts on the show. Brandon's looking like he wants to say some smart-ass comment. But he- <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, well, that's not too hard to overflow your brain, but you, you, uh, you took uh, my, the wind out of my sails. Thank you. Wah, wah, there you <laughs> wah, go, but. That was awesome. All so, right, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, getting back to it. <laughs> uh, as as I mentioned in the beginning, guys, jump onto the show notes at biggerpockets.com/show47. That's biggerpockets.com/show47, and ask Joel any questions you'd like. Uh, thanks again for uh, for being with us on yet another episode. And uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, please head to iTunes and leave us an honest review. Uh, Beyond that, of course, connect with us over on Twitter, Facebook, G+, LinkedIn, Pinterest. You know, we've been we've been trying to play in Pinterest a little bit. So uh, come uh, come join us and and share our our pins. And uh, most importantly, come hang out with us on Bigger Pockets. If if you're not uh, if you're not doing that already, if you're just a listener of the show and and haven't gotten active on Bigger Pockets, my uh, my action item for you is to sign up, create a profile and introduce yourself. Do it. Do it now. Do it. Do it. Yes. All right. So, uh, Brandon, let's get out of here, man. Let's get out of here. I'm Josh Storkin. And I'm Batman. Signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. Stop. 
collaborate and listen. Ice is back with a brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of <laughs> tightly. Flows like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights and I'll glow. To the extreme, we rock a mic like a vandal. Light up a stage and watch a chump like a candle. Dance. There you go. Braving the real estate investing journey on your own can be daunting. Doubts tend to creep up and stifle your ambition. Is this actually a good deal? Did you run the numbers right? What if you can't find a tenant? Can you even afford this place? What if you lose your job? Whatever you're going through, we've all been there. And guess what? The best way to overcome your doubts and hesitations is with a healthy dose of knowledge, networking, and accountability. And that's just what you'll find in our newly released 2024 Summer Boot Camps. After these eight action-packed weeks of step-by-step guidance from expert investors, weekly video modules, live Q&As, interactive assignments, and new friends to keep you accountable, you'll be ready to tackle your first or next deal with full confidence and expertise. Choose from the small multifamily, short-term rental, or rookie boot camps and register by April 12th for the lowest prices. Head on over to biggerpockets.com slash enrollme today. That's biggerpockets.com slash enrollme. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.